This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. Our Voices is a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. John Olofsson is a partner in the Denver office of Lewis Brisbane and a member of their labor and employment practice. John has contributed to the Colorado Bar Association in many ways, including serving on group four of the CBA's diversity initiatives and as part of his role on the CBA's executive council, he chaired the Racial Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Committee. With a fervent interest in music, John also serves as the president of the board for the Denver Philharmonic Orchestra. Today, he speaks with Nicole Sparaza and Courtney Holm about his formative years, finding new paths, and his passion for people and the law. Listen in to learn how he navigated being othered while growing up in a small town, dealing with imposter syndrome, and how he developed his own call to action. Thank you for joining us for Our Voices today. My name is Nicole Sparaza. I'm a family law and civil litigator in the Denver metro area. And with me, I have Courtney Holm. I'm Courtney Holm, and I am an attorney and mediator in Edwards, Colorado, serving uh, general litigation practice needs in, for the mountain areas. And with us today, we have as our guest John Olofsson, who is a partner at Lewis Brisbois Bisgarden Smith here in Denver. And he is an active leader in our Colorado legal community. He is chair of the Ready Committee, which is racial equity diversity inclusivity. He um, recently launched the Kodak program, which is aimed for diverse attorneys and mentorship and leadership. And we're excited to talk with him today. So thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me. And it's good to be with you two in person and not on a Zoom. It's amazing. It's very nice for us to be able to be in person and be able to share your story, John. We're really excited to hear about who you were, who you are, and who you're going to be. So let's go to the beginning and talk about where did you grow up? So I grew up in west central rural Minnesota, a little town named Wadena, Minnesota. And I'm sure you all have heard of that because it's a big metropolis. It Um, sounds like a big metropolis. Let me tell you how big it was. We had 4,000 people. We had a Hardee's. We had a KFC when I got into high school. That was a big deal. Uh, So that's how big we were. We got a Pizza Hut. So Hardee's was the one we'd go to. And it was a, the big deal was to cruise downtown. So you'd go from the Super Value grocery store to the Hardee's. I mean, this is an exciting Friday night. And you would cruise between the two. Uh, so Hardee's and Super Value, a grocery store, were two of my big hangouts growing up. That's how exciting it was. Never a dull moment in Wadena, Minnesota, when you're cruising the Hardee's to Super Value stretch of downtown. Did you have siblings growing up, John? I do. I sort of. So I have a brother and a sister. My brother is 17 years older than me. My sister's 13 years older than me. So I don't really remember them living at home at all. Um, I I like to call myself a retirement gift to my parents, not a surprise (laughs) or a mistake. I was a retirement gift and I've kept them young longer is what I'd like to say. Uh, So my brother and sister were both gone at college when I start kind of, you know, remembering growing up. So I have siblings, but I was sort of an only child at the same time. 
I remember growing up, it was a big deal. My sister went to a small liberal arts college about 90 miles away in the big city of Fargo-Moorhead. Um, and, you know, that's another metropolis that wow. we all know about. Uh, <laughs> and it was a big deal. I'd get to go stay with her and have, like, go to college parties. And so I remember, I think it was my 10th birthday. I don't know, somewhere in there was when my sister graduated college. So we had a cake that was like, happy birthday, John, on one side, and congratulations, Jill, on the other side, uh, <laughs> since it was both at the same time. So uh, it was, it had some advantages, right? Like I got to go see this college life when I was young and, you know, all the, one of my birthday parties was at the pool, an indoor pool. And in Minnesota, that's a big deal, right? Like we would take vacations to indoor pools just to go swimming in the winter. Um, Yet again, big excitement, our vacations to Fargo, North Dakota. Um, but going to an indoor pool was a big deal. And my sister had access to one. And so I had a birthday party in an indoor pool. That's pretty awesome. And, pretty amazing. And it sounds like, so when you get to go and just have your birthday with the college scene, were you getting to go to the college parties with your sister? I called them college parties, but it would be like my sister and a couple friends. Of course, fast forward, you know, 10 years from then when I actually went to a college party, I was definitely not at a college party, um, without a doubt. Uh, but I felt like I was kind of a big kid, right? Like I was hanging out with these college kids. And so I thought that was awfully exciting. So tell me a little bit, what, what was it like growing up in such a small town in a rural place? That's a, a really tough question, Nicole, to be honest, because uh, I grew up in a small town in a smaller state, right? I mean, it's Minnesota and Colorado are a lot alike. You kind of have one or two big cities, and then the rest is just, out. we called it outstate Minnesota, right? I was in, in, in outstate Minnesota, um, and I was a gay kid. Right, I wasn't out. I didn't know quite what that meant. I had no mentors. I had no one to look toward. I knew I was different. My my classmates knew I was different, but we couldn't really put our finger on it. And this was in the 80s and 90s. Um, this is, you know, we call it before Will and Grace and after Will and Grace. This was decidedly before Will and Grace. Mm -hmm. There was no, you know, we didn't have like this week. We had an NFL player come out of the closet, right? That's a huge deal. Like if the 10 year old John would have killed for that, mm -hmm. 10 year old John would have killed to see rainbow flags, right? Those symbols would have mattered to me because it was very lonely. Uh, I didn't have anyone to look up to. I was, I was alone. I was on an island and I didn't know how to come to grips with that. And when you, you know in your head you're different, but you're not quite sure how to process that. And when you're 10, you don't know how to process a lot, right? So you, you find mentors, you find people you can talk to, and I didn't have that. Uh, plus, you know, you don't, you don't know who you can tell, who you can trust. Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, you don't know if you can even trust your family because you don't know how they're going to react. Um, fast forward, when I did come out to my family, they were incredible. Uh, my dad, when he found out, he said, John, you're a special child of God. All we do is ask that you bring someone into our family we can love as much as you. But I didn't know that would be the reaction I would get. You know, my dad was a big coach. He was a teacher, well-respected. My mom owned a business in town. They were very social. They were very plugged into the community. I was worried about what that would do to them. I was worried about how that would impact us in, in our town. And to be honest, I think that probably still exists in my old hometown and probably a lot of rural towns. Heck, I heard a story a couple weeks ago about a 15-year-old girl coming out and the family was threatening to disown her. In 2021, mm -hmm. in, you know, in the middle of Denver, Colorado, 
you know, so that these things still happen and that fear is still there and, and still really very real. Now, Nicole, I was lucky because when I did come out, my, my family embraced me and I didn't have any problem. I did not lose my family. And I can't tell, most of my friends can't say the same thing. I have lots of friends from Minnesota to Texas to New Mexico who did not have that same experience. They're still alienated from their family to this day. And I, I can't imagine that. And that's way too common. John, how old were you when you actually did come out? So, well, <laughs> I'm really good at timing and planning. Okay, so let's start off with that. And this is how good of a planner I was. I decided it was a good time to come out right as I graduated law school and getting ready to take the bar because there's no stress at all there, right? <laughs> so I'm like, this is a super easy time. Let's do it now um, because I'm done with law school, taking the bar, and I'm trying to find a job. So let's add one more thing to it. Uh, so I started the process of coming out the spring of 2001. And I started by talking to friends and, and you know, testing the waters there, um, trying to figure out who was safe and who was not. I was also in the middle of Lubbock, Texas, because uh, I went to school at Texas Tech University. And, you know, when I, when I say this, people look at me like, oh, my God, you came out in Lubbock, Texas. Like, how terrible was that? It was not at all. Um, Comparatively, compared to central Minnesota and where I grew up, it was very open, very accepting. Uh, I was embraced by my friends. Uh, one of my very good friends, who now lives in Denver with his wife, um, he was from a small town in West Texas. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to lose one of my best friends. And when I told him, he's like, cool. And I was building this up literally for a long years, right? And you were expecting some reaction. And he's like, that's great. And I'm like, aren't you going to react? Don't you have anything else? He's like, does this mean we have to take a tequila shot when we go out tonight? Like, what do you want to do to celebrate this? And that's the reaction I got. But you build it up, right? And you, you're not sure what's going to happen. It's a, a completely terrifying moment. And it was, he actually responded the way he should, right? Well, let's talk for a second about why that was so built up. Let's go back a little bit to what your experience was, because it doesn't sound like you were expecting someone to say, cool. It sounds like you were expecting some sort of lashback. And let's talk a little bit about where that came from in Minnesota. So the, the reason you build this up is because from the time I can remember, I don't remember a time when this didn't happen. I was called a fag. I was called a queer. I was picked on uh, by my classmates, uh, by adults. I was ostracized by adults. Uh, when I was in ninth grade, and this is something that will be etched in my mind till the day I die, um, someone wrote the word fag on my locker and spit on it. And I remember um, they, there was a pen, you know, like those, just like a ballpoint pen. They broke it and the ink was dripping down my locker. That was on my locker, I don't know, six months of the year, maybe seven. Wow. And, you know, that's a, a you go to your locker in high school every day, multiple times. And I was greeted by that every day. I think up to my senior year of high school, I was called a fag every day, multiple times. Hmm. Um, so I knew I was different. Now, I had friends, of course. As you know, I'm a pretty social guy. I had lots of friends, um, but we didn't talk about it. I didn't get that support like, John, that's terrible. Or what do you need to do to, to figure this out? It was just ignored. And I, I used to think that was just Minnesota nice because Minnesotans, they don't like to confront things, lock it all up, keep it quiet, and we just put a smile on our face and we're great. When I moved to Texas, when I started meeting people from other places other than Minnesota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, South Dakota, that area, 
I started realizing this was the way it was everywhere. It was just kind of brushed under or just like you just have to accept it. All kids are picked on. Mm -hmm. Yes, all kids are picked on, but that was kind of the next level up. Um, the school didn't rush to take down that. That I saw it every day. My senior year, things changed a little bit. I was probably only called a fag maybe once a week, maybe twice a week my senior year. So it, it, it felt better. Uh, then I went to school at the University of North Dakota. Same thing started happening there. Uh, there was people who lived on my floor in my dorm, uh, and they lived in the suite next to me. And they would yell the word fag down the hallway. They'd yell it at the wall that we shared. Um, in fact, I switched rooms at one point with my suite mates so I could be on another wall. Uh, and that helped. Um, I mean, see, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm apologizing for the people who did this. It helped. I had to move. So I didn't hear it all the way through the night. I didn't hear it in the morning. I didn't hear it. Instead, I just heard it when they walked through the hallway. So yet again, I had to make the change to make an improvement, but it wasn't an improvement, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, so when you build it up, when you actually start, well, then you become self-loathing. Right? You're like, I am wrong. I'm bad. I'm a bad person. How do I fix this? I had girlfriends, um, serious girlfriends. I, I tried my hardest to, to conform to what I thought was I was supposed to be. And I remember before my second year, I'm like, I, I can't do this to her. I can't tell why, I, but I can't do it. I knew better. And so we broke up and she couldn't understand. What's wrong, John? Things are great. And I just said, it just can't work. And then I didn't date another woman. That was in 99. Um, and that's when I stopped to at least self-reflect, like, I can't hurt somebody else. I can't bring someone else in this journey. So when you say, like, why, why, was it, why did you build it up? It's because my whole life I'd been conditioned that I was bad. I was wrong. People were for sure quick to point out how different I was every day. And not in a nice way, like John, you're so unique and different. Let's celebrate that. That that's not the way that was come that came out, right? Mm -hmm. So that when you start telling people, you expect that same backlash and that same anger, and that same I don't know confusion. I don't know. And so you 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 keep expecting it. So now I'm 45 years old. I'm a partner at a large law firm. To this day, I think about those things when I when I meet clients, when I meet colleagues. Um, I still think, how is this going to be a backlash to me? How is this going? How are they going to attack me? To this day, I still have that wall up. Um, and, and, you know, as you know, I do a lot of work in our bar association with equity, diversity, and inclusivity, and racial justice. Like, that's a big personal passion of mine because of my experiences, right? And those negative experiences. And I still have fear. So even when I'm leading in the space, I still, every once in a while, I get that little kernel of doubt in my head, like, should we be going forward and saying this because someone's going to attack us, right? You're going to get attacked. And I have to bury that. And I, because, and I, and all the people that I mentor and my mentors, one of my things that I say a lot is be vocal and be visible. You got to be vocal and you got to be visible. And it takes a lot of courage to do it, but we got to do it because we're not going to make change without doing that. So I remember that. I give myself my own rallying cry. There was only one big hiccup in law school, and it was kind of funny um, in retrospect, but we had this party like called a 100 Days Party, and it's your last 100 days of law school, and there was this big party, right? That was a big tradition at Tech Law. And we were at that, and they did like the slideshow. And in one of the pictures, we were at a house party, 
and I was standing in front of like a pantry and the pantry was open and they captioned it with funny captions. I wrote a few of the captions, right? Um, and it was a, a funny caption about, you know, what are you doing here? Blah, blah, blah. And everyone would laugh. That one that they said, and this was in, I don't know, whatever, March of 2001. Uh, and the caption to that one that was read in front of the entire law school at a party was, John is at an open closet door behind you in front of everybody. Um, that was awkward. And that's when I was starting to feel like I needed to have the guts to start coming out. Um, things, the rumor mill started pretty heavy in law school my second year because I dumped Deborah right before the beginning of second year. Um, and I decided not to date. I, I went asexual, I guess. Like I just, it was not a thing that I wanted to even deal with. So that's when conversations started to really go on. Of course, in rumor mill, people were super respectful to me personally, to my face until that. Um, that next Monday, the dean called me into his office and he said, what do you want to do about this? And I was put on the spot and I was scared and I didn't know what I could say or do. I didn't know if I was going to get attacked. So I said, oh, it's fine. No big deal. Who cares? And my friends started to apologize to me. But yet again, um, I was put on the spot to, to bail out other people for what they said. And that felt pretty terrible. Um, but with that said, that did help segue into the conversations I had. It wasn't the right way, right? You don't want to be thrust into the deep end of the pool when the pool is, you know, 30 degrees, right? You just don't, that's not great, but that's what kind of catapulted me to be like, it's just time. Like I've got to, this, it's just time. John, I want you to break that down for a second, because certainly you were not out of the closet yet. And somebody is so brazen as to put something up that puts you on the spot, making a suggestion. And, and maybe that contributed to when you decided to come out or, um, you know, maybe it was something where you just brushed it under the rug for a little bit in the Minnesota fashion, as we've talked about. But how did that really feel? Because I think sometimes people think they're being funny and they're being hurtful. And, and let's talk a little bit about what that distinction is. It was a kick, kick to the gut, right? The minute I, and it, you know how time slows down mm -hmm. sometimes? That was one of those. Like you feel like you're in a movie and I know Courtney, you love your movies. Uh, you feel like you're in a movie where everything slows down and the world slows down around you and you feel like there's a spotlight on you. And literally everybody stopped, laughed and turned around and looked at me. Everyone knew who I was, you know, and they stopped and looked at me. It was a terrible, terrible moment. So here's an, inter an interesting thing that we, we talk now a lot about intent versus impact. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, it's not a newer conversation, but it's something that's in the limelight, right? When someone says, I didn't intend to do that. So clearly that erases the impact is the thought, which we all know is not the truth, right? So I, and I got a lot of that. We didn't intend to hurt you, John. But at the same time, people weren't saying, how did that make you feel? Like, how, do you, how are you doing? Like, we hurt you, so now what? But instead it was, we were just trying to be funny. Well, and if I say something to you that is offensive or hurts your feelings, and I say, oh, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean it. What is it that I have to do to, to take that back for you so that you can get to that point of, of healing? Because it does, when somebody says, oh, I didn't mean that, that's about them. That's not about you and how you're doing or how you move forward. That's a super tough question, Courtney. Um, and it's probably a little bit individualized. So I, my advice on that is ask, I hurt you in that. Is that true? I know I hurt you. So now what? What do we need to do to make amends? And make it a, a conversation. So you're not, because you're right. 
Courtney, you hit the nail on the head when you say, I didn't intend to do it. You're just absolving your own guilt as a person who did that. You're not, you are not actually addressing, mm -hmm. right? It's like breaking someone's leg and saying, oh, your leg is broken, and then walking away instead of like, what can I do to fix the thing I just broke? I use the analogy of breaking a plate. Maybe you didn't intend to break the plate, right? But it's still in pieces on the floor. So what are we going to do? It's not going to go back. Even if we glue it all back together, it's not going to be in its original form. But what can we do to make this relationship functional and workable and to start rebuilding? And to acknowledge what did the plate mean to you and what what do these pieces mean now and how, how do we rebuild it? It takes time. I really like that a lot. And I might steal that if you're okay with that. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I really like that. I mean, it's, you know, and actually broken. It's funny that you say that because we, we talk a lot about racial justice, for instance, right? And same thing with LGBTQ. Um, people are like, and I, this makes me cringe and it makes me angry, but all lives matter, right? All that. Okay, let's talk about that. So right now we have a, our... When we talk about racial justice, we have a broken leg. So when people say all lives matter, great. So when you break your leg and you come to me and say, John, oh my God, I just broke my leg. I'll be like, I'm so glad your arm is okay because all bones matter, right? All bones matter. So, I mean, it's, you're right. You got to, but that leg will never set the same. It'll always have something there. Mm -hmm. And you've got to address that. You got to address all these different broken bones and chipped nails. And without doing that, uh, we're not doing the hard work. So when you talk about specifically the locker incident and how you saw those words every morning, multiple times a day, at every class change, at every ring of the bell, how was that experience for you? How, how did that make you feel the day after, the month after, six months after, even how, after it was removed, finally? So that's an, an interesting question because one of the first things that when I dig back, how do I feel? It's fear, um, a lot of fear, and you kind of want to turtle in. So it's funny, this podcast, your first podcast was an amazing podcast, and I was listening to it while I was on a commute. You've heard the phrase like, oh, look, there's good old Johnny Blue Eyes, if you recall that, the stereotypical all American, um, you know, they've got it figured out. They've got it good. They've got it easy, right? Johnny Blue Eyes has got it easy. Um, I will tell you, my name is John. I've got blue eyes, six foot with blonde hair, right? Like I'd, I'm that all American kind of look. And Johnny Blue Eyes down the hall doesn't always have it easy. A lot of our people, people in marginalized communities, we share an affinity. And the more that we grow in that affinity together, the stronger we can be all together and use all these different trials to come together and bring us together to figure out what's the solution? What are the things we're going to do? But Nicole, it was, um, first you feel fear, like you feel physical fear. Like, am I going to get beat up today? Am I going to get pushed? Am I going to get, oh, I would get followed home, walking home from school some, um, and teased as I was walking home uh, from school. I couldn't wait to get home and just get in my room and shut the door because it was safe. Um, and I, you know, so that there's that there's, you know, those Maslow period pyramid of, you know, needs. We're talking fundamental, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking physical safety. Then you feel like you're on an island. You don't feel like you have anyone that really knows who you are. Um, you don't, you feel like, um, well, you're, it's fear, right? You're alone. You're literally alone. I couldn't talk to my mom and dad. I couldn't talk to my siblings. I couldn't talk to my friends. They all saw it. They all saw what was going on, but there was this cone of silence, right? 
And then for me, it was self-loathing. What, why am I, why am I bad? Why am I wrong? How do I fix this? How can I fix? I used to pray, just fix this, right? Make me normal. Um, now I'm glad I'm not because who wants to be normal, right? We all <laughs> want to be extraordinary, not ordinary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, but, but now I'm 45. I come from a position of privilege. I've got a great job. I've got a great network. I can say that. But there are 45-year-old gay men and lesbian women and transgender. There's people in my community who don't have that same position of privilege that I come from right now. And they, to this day, they could come out and lose their job. And we, we all say last summer we got Title VII, right? The Supreme Court. People are still getting fired. There's a reason, right? So, I mean, it's, it's – and it's still, even from this position of privilege that I come from, Nicole, it's still – you never know. So a couple of weeks ago, I had an incident with an organization I'm involved in. Um, and this one is still a little bit raw to talk about. Um, and we were talking about LGBTQ rights and the LGBTQ community. And um, through this conversation, I apparently touched a nerve with somebody. And in the course of about three or four hours, I received, um, I don't know, 13 threatening voicemails and emails. Hmm. Um, And it was literally a course of about three hours. And even at 45 years old in the position I'm in, I still got that. And I still had to deal with that. So hearing this story, I'm, I'm envisioning you being this high school kid and then a college kid and, and certainly during these times where you maybe haven't even identified what makes you special or what, what really makes you as a person. Did you find some other welcoming havens that were supportive for you? I tried, um, but that was sort of trial and error. And none of these havens that I found, Courtney, were um, me as my true self. So let me give you an example. So when I was in undergrad, I joined the Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity, and I was a SIGAP. And my fraternity brothers, some of whom are still very close friends of mine to this day, really good friends. Um, and I found a haven there in college. I got It was kind of an escape. They had my back. I had their back. Um, we had a lot of fun. There was great parties and study sessions and retreats and events. Um, but I wasn't able to really be who I was because I still had fear. And I think in retrospect, I think if I would have come out, it would have been mostly okay, but probably not totally. So there's a funny story about this, Courtney. Freshman year of college, we had a retreat for our fraternity. And a fraternity brother of mine, Andy, who's still a very dear friend of mine, we got matched up together. And the whole thing was we had to sit knee to knee, face to face, and we were kind of separated from one another, right? And you had to tell a big secret, like a real vulnerable big secret. So I expected it to be like, I used to steal beer from my mom and dad and go drink in the field, right? Like the total Minnesota way, right? That, that's what I expected it to be. And we were sitting face to face and Andy went first and he told me a secret that shook me to my core and one that I would never repeat. But it was legit, not like I used to steal candy bars, but like a legit secret. And so I was going to come up with something stupid, like I, you know, the examples we just gave, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I looked at him and I said, Andy, I've got a good secret. I can't tell you now, but I promise to tell you someday. So fast forward seven years later, five, six, seven, somewhere there, right? We're in the Mall of America, and I'm up north from Texas. And we all got together to meet in a restaurant, right? 
there's a bunch of us there. It was so much fun to get caught up and see people again. It was like Christmas break, I think. Um, and Andy pulled me aside. He's like, let's go to the bar. So we walked up to the bar. I'm like, what? And Andy said, you told me when we were freshmen in college that you had a secret that you would tell me, um, but you weren't ready yet, but you would tell me later. He's like, I'm cashing that chip in. And I'm like, oh, hell, here we go, right? So I said, here's a deal. I said, and he lived in Reno, Nevada at the time, I think. So, you know, he'd flown into, we're all, you know, remote. And I'm like, all right, here we go. I said, let's order two shots of tequila because the good Texan in me had to have tequila, right? So we had two shots of tequila. And I said, we're going to take a shot of tequila. I'm going to tell you, and then we're going to take another shot. And fraternity brothers kept coming up to us and we're like, go away, go away. So we take the first shot of tequila. It's a loud, loud bar, right? Music playing. It's all exciting. The music stopped. I yell, I'm gay. And everyone in the bar hears, including all my fraternity brothers sitting at the table next to us. And then we take the other shot of tequila. So I kind of ripped the Band-Aid off. <laughs> um, not on purpose, but the Band-Aid got really ripped off um, with tequila on top. Again, one of those moments where time stopped. And Andy gave me a great big hug. He's like, you're still one of my best friends. What can I do to support you? Um, thank you for having the courage to tell me, right? He, again, handled it the right way. I didn't feel different. I felt accepted, truly felt accepted, right? Did anyone else come over and say anything to you as well? Yes. So then at that point, <laughs> I mean, it's all a bunch of Minnesotans. So they're looking with their big wide eyes like, oh my God, what's going on here? We don't talk about these things, right? Because that's mm -hmm. the Minnesota way. Um and um, but people came up and said, that's cool. Thank you for coming out. And, you know, you could have told us, too. And 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 don't say that. Also, don't say or don't say two things. We knew or you could have told me before because it takes a lot of courage to have that coming out. Whenever it happens is the right time. Right. It's your story. It's the person who's coming out. It's their story to tell, not anybody else's. It's their it's their journey. It's their story to tell. And the best thing you can do is show in whatever way you can um, that you accept there's an acceptance there. And there's still that feeling of, you know, in that case, brotherhood. After that moment where you come out and people are supportive, what does that feel like to have that bubble burst and then finally have people react in a different way or in a supportive way? What what does that feel like? Is it a wave that comes over you? Or are you waiting for the other foot to drop? So that's the thing. Like at first, at first you're just like, oh, well, it's like anything, right? Like that adrenaline is going, your heart is beating really fast and you just feel relief that you didn't just get hit or beaten up or called a name or told, you know what, um, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? Or something like that, that makes you once again, realize how marginalized you really are. Mm -hmm. um, but then you wait for the other shoe to drop. And you're like, but you wait for the love the sinner, hate the sin, or I'll pray for you. I heard that one a lot. Um, I'll, I'll be praying for you. And I, I hope you find your way. Um, those kind of things. Which really means I hope you find your way out of what you actually are. Correct. Which is not welcoming. Correct. No, that's real bad. Like that's super marginalizing and it sets you right back. So you wait for that. Um, and I've had that, right? I've for sure had that. Or people who say, I don't see things like that, or it doesn't really matter to me. Well, that's bad to say too, right? Because then you're saying a big part of who I am doesn't matter to you, right? It's kind of like when people say, I don't see color. 
So then you're not seeing who I am. You're not seeing the journey I've been on. Mm -hmm. You're not seeing where I've been and the the things that I, you're not seeing me for who I am. Same thing, right? You're not seeing me for who I am and you're not accepting me. You're marginalizing me again in that moment. And again, it goes back to that intent versus impact. You know, they're, they don't intend to hurt you. They don't intend to be that way. But the impact is still the same, that you still feel like, great, so I'm still second class. I'm still shoved to the side. So let's talk a little bit about how this has impacted what you do now, because you have been extremely, I think we said you're a really active volunteer with Colorado Bar Association. That is an understatement. You are really busy in the Bar Association. Um, and let's talk a little bit about what what the Ready Committee has meant to you and being on executive council and just seeing the changes that the Colorado Bar itself is trying to undertake to correct some of these imbalances. Well, I mean, I think just this conversation, you can kind of see where my passion comes from because I know what that feels like. I personally know what it's like to be marginalized. And the worst part is being marginalized when you're six, seven, eight years old, you have no tools to process it. You have no ability to say, oh, it's more about them than you, right? That's deep and fundamental. And so as I started getting older, um, and as I started kind of looking around the world, really, I'm, I started realizing I can't just be visible and vocal, right, by myself. I've got to help lead change because this stuff isn't going to just fix itself, right? There are institutional and systemic problems for people of color, for women, for people who are disabled, for the LGBTQ community. These things are real and they are systemic problems that we have to address. The Bar Association, in my eyes, well, there's a couple different things. Why the Bar, right? Number one, there's a lot of power in the in the Colorado Bar Association to the extent that there's a lot of voices and a lot of resources we can use to create positive change. And if you look at our mission statement, it actually, one of the clauses in there is enrich our community. As a Bar Association, we're supposed to enrich our community. And I feel like we have the ability to do that on a platform that is really amazing. So why aren't we using it? So that's why we started like the Colorado Leads series, the Lawyers Engaging About Diversity and Solidarity. That isn't aimed for lawyers, it's aimed for the public. And we're putting those out so the public can hear and take advantage of our greatest resource, which is our members, right? The Ready Committee, when Jessica asked, she's like, hey, John, do you want to lead a racial justice task force? I'm like, sure. But we started working and we started talking and I'm like, this is way bigger. So Jessica Brown, who is the, she's almost ending being the Colorado Bar Association president. So she had a lot of discussions with you to try to address a lot of these issues. Yeah. Like she's like, we've got to get on top of this. Like we've got to start moving. And and she kind of, you know, she's like, John, you got a lot of energy, like can we harness this? And I'm like, yeah, let's go. Let's go. And when we started the working group, we realized it was way bigger, right? It was way bigger and there was way more we had to do. So that's why we formed the Racial Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Committee, which, fun fact, it's the first ever standing committee of the Executive Council of the Bar. And it's one of the only things that has a standing agenda item on every EC agenda. Because systemically, we needed to, number one, build a home for it that was permanent, that in five years, a a bar president could be like, oh, we got it. We're done. We're diverse. Everything is equitable. Everything's inclusive, right? Because we all know that's not the truth, Mm -hmm. right? This is forever work, as Amy Larson likes to say. 
So we had to build it so it was actually systemic. It was part of what we did and that it was part of every conversation we had. So what the other thing that we do, Courtney, is we, we built a lens, like how does this decision, budget, uh, bylaws, everything, how does this decision impact our um, institution as an institution of belonging, where people feel they belong and actually do belong. So we're changing the whole leadership lens about the way we look at the decisions we make in the bar, not just on the ready committee, not just with the JSC, but in general. And when you say JSC, so you were on the uh, CBA, DBA, Joint Steering Committee on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusivity before the ready committee. And that was CBA's big push to systemically change uh, how the Bar Association looks at leadership and making transparency and opportunities more available and really changing the composition of our leadership. It was huge. The work that the JSC did was incredible. Like the, and I was on team four, go team four. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like when you saw the leadership survey that went out, that's what team four did. Uh, we worked on the um, changes to our mission and vision statement multiple times. Uh, that was kind of the, the work I was doing on team four. Uh, but the, the base that the JSC has put out there and the tools and the resources are incredible. And so my job is, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is implement the doing, right? Because we've got to do. We can't just, and let's be honest, as lawyers, we're super good at writing policies. We're really good about coming up with plans, but we're not always the best at actually doing. And that's what I'm trying to fight for. Like, we got to keep doing. We got to keep showing up for one another. And we got to keep being vocal and visible. So it sounds like to me, well, you mentioned you're 45 years old. You have a great community around you. You're obviously, like we have discussed, an active leader in our legal community. Um, You're a partner at a large law firm. So how are you doing? I mean, I know that the work is never done, but what's next for you? Um, well, that's a really good question. Um, for me personally, I'm doing okay, right? But like you said earlier, you're always kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop. And two weeks ago, it did. Uh, and I was um, hit with that really hard. Uh, and it was a, and to be honest, it was a beautiful night. I was with Opera Colorado. We just saw live music in person. Um, it was wonderful. And then this all came crashing down. To be perfectly honest, I'm still processing that. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but next, I, that actually sparked me, Nicole, because we have so much work to do mm-hmm. and we have to be vocal and visible and we have to stand up and we have to keep you know, pushing the boundaries um, to you know, make sure that we are being seen, that people in marginalized communities are being lifted up. And thank you, by the way, for this podcast, because you're, you're elevating voices, you're raising voices that aren't always raised. That's incredibly important, right? Like, look at the history. 20 years ago, would this podcast be going on? No, 20 years ago, there you weren't able to marry as a gay male in Colorado. No. In fact, Prop 2 is a kind of a big deal, right? That's a big looming specter over the LGBTQ community here in in Colorado. By the way, the Romer v. Evans case, remember that was the big Prop 2 case that went up to the Supreme Court? When I was in con law my first year of law school, you know, remember we got called on? Mm-hmm. I got called on for Romer v. Evans. That was terrifying. Do you think that was profiling by the professor? Um, I don't think from that professor, no. She is someone who is one of my mentors and someone I really respect. It just is the way that it went 
because she went down the aisle, the rows. So you could start reading two cases ahead while yes. While you saw what was so you knew when it was coming up, right? So you knew it was going to be one or two cases. And when I saw, like when you start planning, you know how it is. You planned it out. But so, John, since you're a 45 year old male and you're mentioning this this very recent and fresh incident. Just because you're 45 doesn't mean you're not still that eight-year-old boy that doesn't have all those tools. No, it's true. And I, I started from ground zero that minute that when I, I, we popped out of the performance and I, you know how you look, check your phone, right? Mm-hmm. I checked my phone. I'm like, what's going on? And I thought maybe it was because I saw all the voicemails because I you know, go to my email and I saw all of them. And in the emails, I'm like, what did I miss? Like, is there, you know, did a client, something big happen? Like I missed during the opera? Because that's what we think, right? Mm-hmm. And then as I started to go through them, that lump, I, I don't know how you describe it, just started to grow. And my partner, Jerry, was standing right next to me and I was show, he was looking as I was scrolling and he was starting to get angry. The people around me started noticing. I mean, it wasn't just something that I was isolated. It was very public, right? And it was it was awful. And you're right. I went back to being seven or eight years old, being followed back home, getting picked on, having things written on my locker at 45 in 2001 or 2021. Do you have any issues as far as how you're perceived either in your, because your actual legal career is in what area? So I do trade secret, corporate espionage, um, corporate work, um, and uh, employment law. And so in that kind of dynamic, do you find that you have to put on a, a facade for people or can you be yourself out there? Depends on the situation. Uh, we have to always be fluid to figure out where we're at. So there's <laughs> microaggressions every day, right? Mm-hmm. And macro. Um, mm-hmm. I've been told, John, if you weren't so enthusiastic, you'd be taken more seriously. Um, that's one a lot of gay men here in the legal profession. Don't be mistaken. Being a gay man in the legal profession is not easy. Um, it's still an old, as you two know, it's still an old boys network in many, many, many ways. To be completely transparent, straight white guys don't know what to do with gay men. They just don't know what to do with us. Um, and it's been that way forever. And there's no different in the legal profession. So if I were to ask you two a couple questions, like number one, name gay, openly gay men that are on the Colorado Supreme Court. None that I'm aware of. Nope. All right. Can you name, I don't know, five or six judges in Colorado who are openly gay men? Probably not five or six. But you can name a couple. I can name a right? couple. And then on the I'm Court of Appeals. I'm not going to name a couple, but I could right, name a couple. You could. But it's hard, right? Look at even our leadership in our organizations that we see um, very few openly gay men who have risen through leadership, even in our own organization. And traditionally, we have never, ever had an openly gay man serve as the president of the Colorado Bar. I have a question because what you're saying touches on something on a very large focus, I would say, on diversity, inclusivity, equity issues, which is, oh, well, there's just not enough people that are interested. There are not enough minorities who are interested. There are not enough LGBTQ plus people that are interested. Um, so, you know, we're just kind of doing what we can with what we have. Do you have a response to that? Big response. That's false. That's patently false. They just not have had the seat at the table. They don't feel invited and they don't feel they belong. Period. End of story. 
Um, that's one of the reasons Spencer Rubin and I are working on the Kodak, the Colorado Diverse um, Attorneys Community Circle, is because we want this our association to be an association of belonging, but real belonging, right? That they that anyone from marginalized communities don't just feel like they've been invited to the dance, but they're being invited to dance and DJ the songs, right? That's not true. That's not all we're working with. They just don't know they can be invited to the table. They've not been welcomed. And that's what we're really trying to work on, right? Like, what do we need to do to make people feel welcome like they actually belong in our association? And it's not just the Colorado Bar. We've That's societal, right? And we've all heard it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, the, we, we talk about leadership pipeline, right? And I, I don't love that term because to me, that doesn't address the feeling of belonging. What it is, it's a leadership engagement. It's got to be a, it's a two-way street, right? Pipeline assumes it's going one way. Like, we just want you to be a leader, right? Because that makes you feel like you're checking a box. I don't want to be the token gay guy. You don't want to be the token Asian, right? You don't want to be the token woman ever, you want to feel like you actually belong for who you are. Mm-hmm. So to get to that point, it's an engagement. You've got to be engaged. So when I hear leadership pipeline, I, I cringe a little bit. I get it, right? That's what we commonly call it. But I, I tried to change the narrative, even with myself. It's leadership engagement because that's what makes people feel like they belong because they do belong. And I think you're also touching on the difference between diversity and inclusivity, right? Because you can have a token. You can be quote unquote diverse. Um, but you're not going to maintain that diversity unless you create a community of inclusion. Correct. So John, what makes you feel welcomed on a committee, on a, in a boardroom, anywhere else? What's something that people can think of that goes that extra step to actually make you want to be on that committee, not just checking a box? When I'm engaged, when I'm not just sitting on the Zoom screen or at the table, when people are like, John, what do you think of that? Or John, what's the impact on that? What are your thoughts on that? If I'm part of the actual conversation or like Jessica, when she formed a working group, she's like, John, would you like to lead that? I felt welcomed. I wasn't a token. Being actually engaged. And it takes leaders to do that engagement. Someone's got to take that first step. And don't don't ask the people in the marginalized communities to be always the one to take that step. It's got to be someone else that takes that step and comes to you and says, I would like you to be involved with this. I would like you to help facilitate this or whatever it is, right? And be engaging. And as you two know, because we've worked together in the bar, I'm all about, let's get a team together. Let's talk about this. Let's figure this out. Let's get on a, for the last year, get on a Zoom and talk about what we could do next. I mean, last week we talked um, we did talk about some week. ideas, right? Like that's that's engaging. That's engagement. And we've got to do more of that. Well, John, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being vulnerable and for donating so much time, effort, and energy to our Bar Association. It really does make a difference and really does make an impact. And being vocal and vulnerable, it's those are two things that I hadn't really thought about that intimately before having this conversation with you. And you're absolutely right. I think that those are two cornerstones that really need to be amplified more. Well, and thank you for putting this out and all of the work that you do um, for communications, because we're not going to be anywhere without amplifying voices. Uh, And that's what you're doing. And that's incredibly, incredibly important. Plus, it's super interesting to hear about people in their lives. Again, we're raising voices and we're having a discussion. So thank you for putting that out. 
Thank you, John. We're just so thankful for the time you've spent with us today and all the time that you spend trying to change things in the bar and elsewhere. Thank you very much. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Maureen Watson, Nicole Sparaza, Sue Mealy, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producers and editors are Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza, with introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.